afternoon. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is The Callie Crossley Show. His answer is to talk about my family and how I grew up. Well, I say this. If that's all you've got, Scott Brown, I'm ready. That's the victorious Elizabeth Warren addressing her supporters after a sweeping win at the Massachusetts Democratic Convention this past weekend. She and Senator Scott Brown are now the only two in this race. They want to, They both want to represent the seat at one time held by the late Senator Ted Kennedy. Joining me to talk about this contest and other political races are New Hampshire insiders Arnie Arneson and Fergus Cullen. Welcome back, you two. It's a pleasure. Hello. So uh, respond, if you would, to now, finally, uh, Elizabeth Warren and Scott Brown, the face-off, the national face-off, really, even though it's being held in Massachusetts. Well, I don't know if you've seen it today at Fergus, but this definitely is a national story. This is not a U.S. Senate race. This is a national Senate race. I'm looking, Kelly, at the opinion page of the Concord Monitor. This is Monday, June 4th. And here is the Concord Monitor opinion editorial. Ancestry isn't the issue in Warren race. So, so this story, everyone is paying attention to it. Everybody is paying attention to the race between Scott Brown and uh, Elizabeth Warren, and in part because um, it's also a story uh, about the sort of financial collapse of the United States uh, because of you know how Scott Brown won when he won um, just a couple of years ago, and then Elizabeth Warren, who was so involved in creating that consumer protection division, of course, did not get to head it. Uh, all looking at the meltdown of Wall Street. So this is really a story about what is the narrative in 2012 and how are we going to look at the economy, how are we going to look at the investment banking community, and, and really what are the choices for voters, not just in the state of Massachusetts, but I think the country is watching this race because it's a real predictor of what will happen, I think, even in the presidential race. I think there's a, a cause and effect here, and people are ser- seeing their narratives being tied to how Scott Brown is going to play out and how Elizabeth Warren is going to play in the Democratic, um, this Democratic Republican election. So, uh, Fergus, do you agree with the the reasons why people are paying attention to this as a national race, or uh, does it also have something to do with the personalities of both uh, Scott Brown and Elizabeth Warren to to date? I'm curious. We know why we're interested in it here in Massachusetts, but as you look even close by, what are the things that are driving such national and intense national interest in this race? Oh, absolutely. It is a national race. And, you know, just like the election in Wisconsin tomorrow with Governor Scott Watts, Scott Walker is a national race. Uh, this Massachusetts race is a national one, too. You know, Elizabeth Pro- Warren's problem isn't that she's 132nd part Indian. It's that she's 31 parts left-wing liberal. And the Democrats in Massachusetts have put together a candidate who is so easy to classify as a real left-wing ideologue across issues. And that's what it's going to be like with those independent voters. And look, this election ought to be a layup for Massachusetts Democrats. This race should be over. Scott Brown is a very appealing candidate. He's likable. But nonetheless, he's running in Massachusetts. And if they had put up a less flawed candidate, this race would really already be in the bag. But she's not flawed. I mean, she's not, the, the problem, Fergus, is is that you can call her a left wing, you can call her a Harvard professor, you can you know talk, talk about the fact that she served in the Kremlin on the Charles, whatever it is that the phrases are from the National Journal. But the difference is is that everybody looked with disdain with what happened with the bailout of Wall Street, looked at the financial community, looked at what happened to consumer protection, looked what happened in the mortgage markets, looked what the derivatives did to this country. They see Elizabeth Warren as speaking out. He, historically on these issues, and these are issues that go to people's pocketbooks, it goes to their future, it goes to their lives. When you hear, Callie, that for the first time ever, corporate America is sitting on 10% of the gross domestic product in this country is represented by profits of corporations. That's never been the case before. And those profits are not being used to invest in workers. Those profits are not being used to invest in the future. Those profits are being sat on. And then we bail out Wall Street. You look at Scott Brown and you say, what is he to do with the problem of the past? He's there to repeat it. What is Elizabeth trying to do, Elizabeth Warren? She's trying to change the conversation, change the dialogue, and make sure the public interest is served. This is about the public and not the special interest. 
Well, one of the things that, uh, to uh, Ferguson's point about this should be a layup if you're a Democrat in Massachusetts, and she is, and by the way, she captured the Democratic nomination with uh, close to 100 percent of delegate support, even though she had a very, um, you know, uh, reasonably strong contender for a place on the ballot challenging her who came up with the 15 percent that was needed uh, to be a part of that convention conversation. But we have Scott Brown, who is touting his bipartisan um, record. And he's uh, been very, some say clever, others say uh, good uh, to his promise of saying that he was going to work both sides of the aisle. But he seems to be able to point to it in ways that make people feel comfortable with him, Fergus. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's doing a great job in terms politically and I think in terms of policy as well. But that doesn't change the fact that, you know, in a, in a regular year, this election should not be close. And I'm not here saying that he got elected as a fluke. But, you know, it is true that even with uh, all the flaws last time of, of the Democratic nominee, the attorney general, uh, he still should not have won that race, and he shouldn't be in a position to get reelected now. But he is, and of course, I would personally be supporting him. But you know, this is a real conundrum for people on the left, especially ideologues on the left. It appears that Elizabeth Warren used her supposed ethnic heritage and minority status for personal gain when it suited her, and that Penn and Harvard were, you know, perfectly happy to go along with this. I mean, Dr. King's request was that we be judged by the content of our character, by our skills, our talents, our abilities, not by the color of our skin or our bloodline. And Elizabeth Warren did something that millions of Massachusetts residents wouldn't do, which is try and gain some kind of advantage or leg up over other people on ethnic grounds. And that resonates with regular people. First of all, let me share a story. Michael Goldman, who I think you probably know, Kelly, is an old political consultant. He's worked for Democrats for years. He was on the radio with me a couple of weeks back, and he reminded me of something that was very familiar, is that, is that in our family, we all have stories. We have stories about our origin. We have stories about relatives of the past. We have stories. We never, never question those stories. And here you have Elizabeth Warren growing up in Oklahoma, being told that there were that, that there were Native Americans in her family. Would you say to your mom, Mom, are you telling me the truth? Show me the birth certificate. Are you lying to me, Mom? You would assume that the family story was true. You don't make it up. You don't lie. You use it as part of your storyline because it is your history and your heritage. It would never occur to you to question it. And when you go on to higher education and they ask you questions like, what is your heritage? You include it. If you don't include it, are you lying? If you do include it, are you using it to your advantage? Aren't you being accurate with what you think you know? It wasn't until someone found out that maybe she could not, in fact, find the the genealogical record that this was the case, then you suddenly realize that some families have stories that have become so part of who they are that whether they're true or not, they have become true, and you believe them. And when you look at whether she used it to her advantage, show me, Fergus, just because she said she was part this, that she got hired because somehow they were hiring her for her Native American status and not for her incredible accomplishment across the board. And you've seen that accomplishment over and over again, including in Washington, which is why she is so loved and beloved and why the Democrats gave her 96 percent of the vote in the Democratic Convention in Massachusetts. It had nothing to do with her being a Native American. It had everything to do with her ability, her talent, and her portfolio. I think it's uh, uh, fair to say that, however, uh, Arnie, that the way that she responded to what you know, what some call a trumped-up controversy, what others say a real issue is is the problem, and therein is is something that's going to dog her. And it could be back to Ferguson's point that uh, you know this has brought more attention to her in a way that. Uh, is, is not helpful in, in trying to propel her campaign forward. She made a mistake. Yeah. You're abs- I think she handled it absolutely horrifically. I think she marginalized it without recognizing how important it was. She discredited the person that was asking her, not knowing that this would be used to her advantage. She showed that she was somewhat of a political novice, but it is so common, Callie, for people to basically blow something off without recognizing the gravity of the potential question. And when the Republicans were looking for some flaw in her character, she handed it to them because she was not able to respond effectively. All she 
had to do is say exactly what I said. I was told that. It never occurred to me to question it. I've always assumed it was true. I never did a LexisNexis check on my family history. Maybe I should have, but I didn't. Uh, that being said, I don't think we've heard the end of that, as some might have uh, might wish. Uh, I think it's probably going to come back up when the debates are coming, though. Uh, she's, uh, as she as you heard in her in her. Uh, clip from her speech, uh, ready to do the good fight. So uh, that's going to be important. Uh, somebody else who's ready to do the good fight, I think, is uh, Governor Deval Patrick, who came out swinging at the Democratic convention. And I just wanted to uh, play a clip of Deval Patrick sounding quite feisty indeed. Here he is delivering some tough love at the Massachusetts Democratic convention. If we want to win elections in 2012... If we want to keep Barack Obama in the White House, win back our Senate seat, and move our country forward, if we want to earn the privilege to lead, then it is time for Democrats to grow a backbone and stand up for what we believe. That's pretty powerful, given in light of what you know is going to be happening in this Senate race, and 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 Fergus, your uh, your reference to uh, the battleground that's happening in Wisconsin, uh, which is also turning into a national contest. It is. And, you know, people on the right have been arguing this, too. You know, those Republicans, those conservatives who think that John McCain was defeated four years ago because he wasn't conservative enough, he was trying to be too wishy-washy and move to the middle, you know, that gave rise to the Tea Party. And we remember Howard Dean, you know, some 10 years ago saying, I'm here to represent the Democratic wing of the Democratic Party. And I think of that comment when you hear Governor Patrick making those kinds of comments, too. There are lots of partisans who want a fight, who don't want this to be about moderation or being in the middle or being in the sensible, reasonable center. They want to have a big a fight that's on bold colors, not pale pastels. And so in this sense, the far left is very much politically like the same Tea Party activists that they disparage. So. Do you think we're going to get that? Because, you know, now we have uh, Mark Leibovich in the New York Times talking about how alike both Romney and President Obama are. are so are we resigned to the pale colors? I mean, I think there's a lot of disappointment on the left that, you know, Barack Obama hasn't been strong enough. You know, on health care, he didn't go for single payer. He didn't, that he could have gone further. You know, those same people who said, who believed him when they said we would, you know, get out of get Guantanamo Bay, that we would end all U.S. presence in the Middle East, they have to be disappointed today. And so maybe the left is saying, look, you know, our own president hasn't had enough background on the backbone on the kinds of things that we voted for him for. Well, but you also have to remember that, I mean, just think about it. What are you saying about Scott Brown? He's been bipartisan. He's voted this way. And yet he was the Tea Party darling. I mean, what got him there was the Tea Party, and the Tea Party are strident. They don't like the term bipartisan. That's a swear word, bipartisan. They want you to do the walk. They want you to do the talk. And and so, again, this is the real dilemma. Where do people want their candidates to land? And when they choose them in their primary or they embrace them, and suddenly they need to then get elected and they need to govern, it's not easy to govern from the extremes. It never, ever is. But we have forgotten to remind people about the value of compromise and the value of dialogue. I think what's interesting, though, about the, the, the idea of Mitt Romney and Barack Obama being very similar is that to a large extent they are. They are people of privilege in the sense of where they went to school. They are very supportive of Wall Street. Take a look at Barack Obama. Take a look at Barack Obama's team. It's made up of the Goldman Sachs. He loves Jamie Dimon until a couple of weeks ago. I mean, you know, it's, it's ironic that we see so much similarity since when you run, you want to somehow create this illusion that we are so different when in reality they've actually backed into each other. All right. We're talking about the political races that are heating up in New England. We're also looking at the impact of these races uh, in the fight between Mitt Romney and President Obama. I'm speaking with New Hampshire insiders Arnie Arneson, a radio and TV commentator, and Fergus Cullen, a public affairs consultant and editorial page columnist with the New Hampshire Union Leader. The conversation continues on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. WGBH programs exist because of you and Orchard Cove, where their substantial updates are now complete. 
you can see how the new face of this independent senior community in Canton is transforming residents' lives. You can schedule a tour online at orchardcovelive.org. And the Massachusetts Teachers Association and Hebrew Senior Life, sponsoring news and talk on 89.7. To learn how WGBH can benefit your business, visit wgbh.org sponsorship. And from members of the Ralph Lowell Society, these most generous annual contributors lead the way in sustaining WGBH as a public media resource, available and free to all. WGBH.org slash Ralph Lowell. Flamenco music may not be a natural fit for the sitar, but Anushka Shankar says Spanish flamenco and Indian ragas share one thing in common, fancy footwork. In Indian dance, people wear bells on the feet to accentuate the foot patterns, and it's absolutely in tandem with the percussionist. And in flamenco, the same is true. A Raga flamenco journey with Anushka Shankar, next time on The World. Coming up at 3 o'clock here at 89.7 WGBH. Hi, my name is Maya, and I'm a WGBH sustainer. Sustainers like Maya break their gifts down into monthly installments that automatically renew. That helps 89.7 plan better, and better plans means fewer fundraisers. And that's why Maya is responsible for this hour of programming coming to you fundraiser free. Thanks, Maya. Yeah, you too. Join Maya by supporting 89.7 as a sustainer online at WGBH.org. The food truck has taken big cities by storm, changing what we've come to expect from food on the go. I'm Christina Quinn. Hear how the food truck boom is changing the way we eat and why other Massachusetts towns and cities want in. Wednesday on WGBH's Morning Edition. Welcome back to the Callie Crossley Show. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is RNC Chair Reich Priebus taking on President Obama's campaign. If this president had Mitt Romney's job record, they'd be holding a carnival celebrating uh, their successes. But uh, they've failed so badly uh, that they want us to believe that we're not living on earth and that the president isn't the president. And all of these things that are going wrong have nothing to do with Barack Obama. That was RNC Chair Reich Priebus talking to Bill Schieffer yesterday on CBS's Face the Nation. Joining me to talk about this and other political headlines are New Hampshire insiders, radio and TV commentator Arnie Arnerson, and Fergus Cullen, a public affairs consultant and editorial page columnist with the New Hampshire Union Leader. Uh, now, when Reich Priebus was talking specifically uh, to Bob Schieffer in that moment, he was referencing a kind of mishmash at the State House last week where David Axelrod, one of uh, President Obama's chief strategists and surrogates, was standing outside the State House making a statement about um, the, the lack of, of ec ec economic um, progress and success uh, on the part of Mitt Romney when he was governor, and he was uh, booed down, shouted down by a lot of Mitt Romney supporters. But on Friday, the economic... Uh, job statistics came out, and they weren't good. They're going in the wrong direction now, minimally, but it's just enough for a lot of folks who uh, who study this to say, wow, this is an issue. And it's just enough also for both sides to now claim that the direction that they want to go in is the best way to go. So, Arnie, your response to Reich Priebus and also right now how the president's campaign is responding to the economic numbers. Well, you know, we we have to remember that that the United States is not an economic island. I mean, the fact is is that we are so international in scope. We depend on imports and exports. And you and I know that if you read the story about what's going on in the EU, you want to cry. You're not even sure the EU is going to exist two years from now, that it might financially implode. And you've seen the effect of deficit redu reduction and austerity in places like Greece and Spain. Are their economies growing? Are they coming back? Are they buying more goods from Germany? No, they're not. Instead, what they're doing is they're shrinking and they're dying. And the fact is, what's happening in the EU is going to impact what happens in business. I just told you that statistic about corporations sitting on more profits than they've ever sat on before. They're not hurting. They're just not spending. They're not investing. And it's not because of what Washington is or isn't doing. It's because it's an economic calamity, and it's worldwide. And the question is, what needs to change for people to run the risk? And government needs to be part of that. And I think that's, in part, what Barack Obama has been saying. And he made a really 
really wonderful point when he was talking about Mitt Romney and Bain Capital and the financial world and the investment world. He said, you know, what Bain Capital cared about was not job creation. It cared about profit and bringing money back to its investors. But government isn't in that business. It doesn't look at profit. It doesn't want to bring money back to investors. What it needs to do is invest in the public good and the public opportunity and make a difference for the future. You can't do what business does and be good at governing because it's not the same thing. And isn't it ironic that you have Mitt Romney constantly pointing to what he did at Bain, but the thing that he did best was what he did with health care in Massachusetts. And Cali, he runs away from that. And that's the part that I think makes me crazy when you begin to realize that 98% of the population of Massachusetts is now insured, or and their children have the highest rate of insurance of any state in the nation. He can't even point to his governing success because he wants to repeal that for the nation. That's Mitt Romney's problem. It is international, and it goes to his time as governor. His asset has now become his liability. Well, in fact, go ahead, Fergus. I'll let you well, respond I first. mean, Arnie somehow managed to skip over the fact that the unemployment rate crept up last week and was pegged at 8.2%. And when Barack Obama passed the stimulus plan three years ago now, it was with a promise that the unemployment rate would not go above 8%. It's now been there for, I think, 38 consecutive months. And now, listen, I am someone who sees the limits in what government can do. I am not willing to blame a president for a high unemployment rate thinking that their policies can change it unilaterally, nor am I willing to give credit to a president of either party when an unemployment rate sinks. But this this idea that this president, Barack Obama, has overpromised and underdelivered, that he wasn't up to the job, that he's really floundering when it comes to making the kinds of economic choices that might encourage job creation in this country, that's his problem. And you hear people like his deputy campaign manager, Stephanie Cutter, who's from Massachusetts, continuing to blame the Bush administration, which left office three and a half years ago, for today's economic trouble. That's a real problem. And so I agree that actually with Mitt, Rom- Mitt Romney has a positive story to tell when it comes to health care. I think that's going to be an important issue, exactly. especially when the U.S. Supreme Court decision comes down in the next couple of weeks. But it, his credibility as a candidate has been based on a weak economy and that he knows more about economics and job creation than President Obama does. And, you know, we've tried him. He's had his chance. He's failed. And now it's time to le- let somebody else try and, and let's remember why he's failed. And why he's failed is, is that in order to accommodate the Republicans in the House and Senate, he needed to downplay and lower what he was able to do in the way of investment. I always use this analogy, Callie, and that is you have this waterfall you want to create. You have to bring the water up 10 feet in order for it to spill over the top. But what you do is you get the water up to 9 feet. Well, guess what? You got high water. You just didn't get the damn waterfall. And that's exactly what happened to Barack Obama. So he never got what he needed. Then you're absolutely right. He overpromised, never recognizing the extent of the economic hemorrhage that was left him by Bush and the extent of the economic hemorrhage that would continue to increase because of what was happening worldwide. Don't tell me, Fergus, that what's going on in Europe, and to some extent even in China today, is not impacting what is happening in job creation here. Corporations are not hurting puppies. They're sitting on cash. They're just not spending it. And the question is, they're not spending it, not because of Washington, because they're looking at the world stage and they're saying, build something, sell something, make something, who's going to buy it? Well, the bottom line of this is uh, is is that in at this moment in time, and certainly into the fall, all of these facts and figures that are very reasonable on on both sides and for people to consider as they're voting uh, become political footballs, and oh, yeah. so it, it boils down to uh, people's perception or faith or confidence and who they believe uh, is equipped to sort of pull keep pulling us out of this morass. Um, even if it's, you know, to take you back down to 8.1%, uh, there were 69,000 jobs that were created uh, last month, but it should be 150,000. And at the same time, what's become at issue is whether it is uh, Mitt Romney's reputation in and around Bain. Now, we've seen Cory Booker, mayor of Newark, get slapped down 
uh, for saying he didn't want to see a lot of negativity about Mitt Romney's record with Bain. He would rather see that focused on his record as a governor, other issues, but not that. And this past week, we now see President Clinton stepping up essentially to say the same kind of thing. I want uh, to play the clip. This is President Clinton defending Mitt Romney's track record last week on CNN. I don't think that we ought to get into the position where we say this is bad work. This is good work. There's no question that in terms of getting up and going to the office and, you know, basically performing the essential functions of the office, a man who's been governor and had a sterling business career crosses the qualification threshold. So, now, Arnie, it's, you know, this is President Clinton. I love it. <laughs> he's the master politician. So it's not, you know, people said with Cory Booker, okay, well, he stepped out there, you know what he's talking about, and had to come back as a surrogate. But President Clinton's pretty savvy about when to say and what to say it. Uh, now, of course, he went on in that conversation to say there's much to criticize about uh, Mitt Romney's economic record in Massachusetts as a way of looking at him as a governor. But he thought that fundamentally going after his uh work at Bain was not the way to do it. Well, I'm going to be a bad person right now because I'm going to remind everyone about Bill Clinton. It was on Bill Clinton's watch that we repealed Glass-Steagall. It was on Bill Clinton's watch that many of the Goldman Sachs people became so part and parcel of the United States Treasury Department. It was under Bill Clinton that we deregulated derivatives. And when you look at the economic meltdown of 2008, uh, so much of that can be attributed to William Clinton. When you look at William Clinton when he left office, within like two months of leaving, he was offered $125,000 to give two speeches, one to Credit Suisse, and I think the other one was to either Goldman Sachs or one other. If you look at the millions he has made since leaving office, you can point directly to Wall Street. His daughter gets hired by a hedge fund uh, group. I mean, I hate to say this, but Bill Clinton is so wedded and so protective of Wall Street because it was what buttered his bread when he was president. It will continue to butter his bread as an ex-president. So is he going to say anything bad about Bain or Wall Street? No, he needs another $80 million. But how does that play out and politically? That, uh, and that, and th- that is a problem because Clinton Remember, Clinton is the liar we love. I just want to remind everyone, Clinton is the liar we love. I'm going to go back to Elizabeth Warren. You're going to hate me, Callie. But Elizabeth Warren, you know, screwed up by not acknowledging that she thought her family history was correct. We would reelect Bill Clinton knowing he slept with everybody, knowing that he lied to everybody. So we've got to put lies in perspective, and we also have to look at his financial agenda. Bill Clinton accomplished for the financial markets something that no Republican can do. Unfortunately, it happened under my label as a Democrat. And are you surprised that Barack Obama now is defending Wall Street? It's what he's good at and what he's always done. The problem is, take a look at what happened to the economic meltdown, and so much of it can be attributed to him. He never helped fix it. He just helped it implode. He doesn't help Barack Obama by defending Bain. He forgets to remind people that what Bain does is not what government does. That's what Clinton should be doing. He isn't helping the country, and he isn't helping Obama. All right, Fergus, you must be just <laughs> gleeful about this. I can only imagine. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't. I, it's hard for me to step in front of that. But I, can we talk a little bit about a liar who's getting no political love this week, and that's the former House Majority Leader in New Hampshire? Absolutely. Oh, yeah, thank Absolutely. You. Yes. So, So for those who didn't hear the story, so New Hampshire has had a young majority leader in the legislature, a young man named D.J. Betancourt, who about 10 days ago was abruptly forced to resign when it uh, became public that he had lied about whether he had done an externship for credit that he needed uh, to graduate from UNH's law school. Uh, This is a young man who is serving his third term in the legislature. He had become a law student some three years ago, and it was after that, after his first year and a half, in fact, in law school, that uh, the Republicans found themselves in a majority and elected this young man as their majority leader. Uh, So he was trying to balance going to law school and serving as majority leader at the same time, a tall task for anybody, and he wasn't able to pull it off. The problem is that he lied about it. He He cheated. uh, He didn't just lie, he cheated. He he did. He arranged for a... He arranged for an internship or an externship in the uh, sole practitioner law office of a fellow state rep, and then he didn't show up. 
and uh, he graduated from the law school, or at least walked into graduation a couple weeks ago. And the state rep who had uh, allegedly you know, hired him for this internship uh, sees a picture of it on Facebook and says, hmm, that's funny. I thought he needed my externship <laughs> in order to graduate. So he had, and this was a fellow Republican, he had the courage to contact UNH Law School and say, hey, uh, what was up with that uh, coursework? And they basically said, well, he you know, submitted his reports, and so there you go. And he says, well, I want to see the reports. They'd been made up. He had attended you know, public hearings that he hadn't been to. He'd you know, talked to witnesses and gone to uh, court dates that he hadn't actually gone to, had made the whole thing up. And his world came crashing in on him very, very quickly, forced to resign, and uh, it's been a big scandal in New Hampshire this may, week. May, let, me, let me just follow up on that, because as someone who went to law school, and instead of finishing it in three years, Callie, it took me four and a half. Mm -hmm. There's no requirement that you finish in three. You finish. That's the goal. If there was so much on the poor young DJ's plate as majority leader, and he could not provide the leadership for the House and still finish his law degree, he could have said to the law school, I need some time off. I cannot complete it. He didn't. He thought he could do what he's always done, which is fabricate, because he has a history of fabricating when he was majority leader. What did he do? Not only did he claim that he completed this internship, but to go into the detail of what he did, he only worked one hour as an intern. He fabricated 165 hours of work with incredible detail, so much detail, Callie, that he could have completed his internship if he had spent all that time doing it. Instead, he didn't. And then when he was exposed, he then gave some sort of lame excuse for leaving the office without explaining with little more detail that he had done something wrong and that's why he was stepping down. So when he could have actually made it over, Pretty quickly, he continued to fabricate because he doesn't have a moral compass, and that's his problem. And this poor young man not only is probably never going to get a law degree, he's never going to finish school. He got married this weekend. Can you imagine getting married oh as God. your world is imploding around you? And on top of that, this is the same individual, the Republican majority leader, who referred to the Bishop of Manchester as a pedophile pimp. This is the same Republican majority leader who, when uh, was asked whether uh, the Speaker of the House had actually verbally harassed and attacked a state representative, another Republican from Ringe, said, oh, no, the speaker never did. And then a number of other people who happened to be present in the room said, we think that the majority leader is incorrect. It, in fact, did happen. What D.J. Betancourt has not only done is hurt his career in forever, but he's begun to hurt the Speaker of the House, because for the first time ever, you have everything from the very conservative Manchester Union leader to the Portsmouth Papers, to the Concord Monitor, to the Nashua Telegraph, raising questions, not just about the majority leader, but the Speaker of the House, because there have been so many problems when it comes to ethics and judgment on the part of the Speaker that there needs to be a question about the Republican leadership that's now controlling New Hampshire. So the immediate response, of course, is that he had to resign, but what is the the fallout from this, and and where do you go from here? Well, you know, the, the timing, of course, also couldn't be worse in that the New Hampshire legislative session ends this week. So the last two weeks of its session, you know, where key decisions are being made, has, of course, been completely overshadowed by this internal mess. You know, they've swapped out a new majority leader himself, who's only been in the legislature for three years. And they're trying to complete some really important business, including passage of a constitutional amendment to uh, solve the education funding issue in a final and permanent way, we would hope. So all sorts of things are going to fall by the wayside because of this. And as Arnie points out, it has given uh, fodder to those who opposed the, the Speaker of the New Hampshire House, a man named Bill O'Brien, who has uh, exercised that job with an authority uh, that we have not seen in New Hampshire before over the last year and a half. And, in short, uh, so he's a despot, just to let you know. I mean, that, I mean that, and, and, the, and here's the interesting Massachusetts piece, because this is important, I think, um, Fergus, for the, for the listeners to understand, that Speaker O'Brien used to be a law partner with your former Speaker, Speaker Finneran, you know, who is, you know, affectionately called felon Finneran. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, the man learned some of his leadership skills from someone in Massachusetts who's been so discredited. In fact, just this week, he stepped down from WRKO and his position as a morning drive time host and has lots of questions about his character and his ability to lead. And this is our speaker. So, yes, there has been problems for a year and a half. It is hitting an incredible low point with the majority leader being forced to resign because of so many other issues. And it is going to raise questions not only about the Speaker of the House, 
but there are two Republicans that are running for governor. We, too, have a September primary. And the issue will be where do they draw the line from how they behave, how they will lead, where they will exercise their compass versus how the speaker and his leadership team have failed, I think, both their party and their state. Are voters, like, up in arms, Fergus? Well, you know, for most of the past year, I have been poo-pooing the Democrats' attempt to sort of link everything to the Speaker of the House and try and tear him down. But I have changed my mind in that I think it is actually starting to get some critical mass that regular people, people who are not political junkies and activists, are tuning in and paying attention to this. And this latest scandal, I'm afraid, is going to have some legs, and people will be able to connect the dots, and they won't have to draw uh, the line very long in order to do it. So uh, it's could definitely going to be an issue, I think, in fall campaigns. I think it'll be overshadowed by things like unemployment, the direction of the economy, the presidential election. New Hampshire is a swing state, the only one in the Northeast that's, that is expected to be a competitive election that's this year. But, uh, but every candidate for state rep is going to, of either party, is going to have to ask, answer that question from voters. You know, are you for or against the speaker? If he runs for re-election, will you support him in that position or will you not? Republicans in primaries are going to have to answer that question. Uh, so it has become, uh, it has definitely become part of the debate here. Just, I hate to ask a stupid question, but what would be the advantage of saying you support him at this point? None. None. I, I, I mean, he may not even make it, Kelly. Uh, the speaker, we have 400 legislators. Let's remind everyone they get paid $100 a year. Their districts are the size of peanuts, you know. And I'm not even sure that Speaker O'Brien will win re-election in his teeny, tiny district because there is so much angst, embarrassment, and anxiety about it. So it is going to be problematic for Speaker O'Brien. But if the Republican Party doesn't recognize that the fish rots from the head down and that there's something really wrong with the Speaker and this leadership team, it becomes a problem for Republicans. When the Catholic Church failed to act on the pedophile scandals, it became a problem not just for the cardinals and the bishops that failed to act. It became a problem for the Catholic Church. The same thing is now going on on a very micro scale with the Republicans in New Hampshire. If they fail to recognize what is wrong and rotten here, it will impact them and it will affect the 2012 election. Okay. Last word on that subject for the moment. I'm Callie Crossley. We've been talking about politics with radio and TV commentator Arnie Arneson and Fergus Cullen, a public affairs consultant and editorial page columnist with the New Hampshire Union Leader. The political conversation continues. We're going to explore a political whodunit that involves a truce at a restaurant in Providence, Rhode Island, frantic calls from Washington, and intrigue in Governor Lincoln Chafee's office. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. This program is made possible thanks to you, and Greenberg Traurig, an international law firm with offices in Boston and more than 30 other cities worldwide, addressing the complex legal needs of businesses from startups to public companies. Global reach, local resources. GTLaw.com. And Tivoli Audio. I think WGBH and all it represents, both in this market and really around the world, is important for our company to be associated with. Tom DeVesto, founder and CEO. Tivoli Audio has just started a sponsorship, and we already hear from people regularly that they hear the sponsorship on the radio and uh, really gets to our customers. To learn more, visit wgbh.org sponsorship. On the next Fresh Air, the United States clandestine cyber war against Iran. We talk with New York Times reporter David Sanger about the computer worms, including Stuxnet, the U.S. developed in tandem with Israel to disable Iran's nuclear centrifuges. Sanger's new book is called Confront and Conceal, Obama's Secret Wars and Surprising Use of American Power. Join us. This afternoon at 2, here on 89.7 WGBH. If you're looking for something that's cool and sweet and sprinkled with fun, the WGBH Fun Fest is all that with a cherry on top. 
Saturday, July 14th at WGBH in Brighton. It's a day hand-packed with ice creamy goodness. Mix it up with PBS Kids characters, swirl in some rides, games, music, and more. It's enough to make you melt. Tickets will sell out, and that's a sure bet, so don't waffle. Get the whole scoop at WGBH.org slash FunFest while you still cone. Uh, sorry, can. Local issues, local talk. Outside Plymouth, officials and citizens are concerned that Pilgrim is the same make and model as three reactors that experienced fires and explosions. 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to the Callie Crossley Show. We're talking about voter ID laws. These are laws that are typically branded as a Republican tactic to disenfranchise minorities and elderly voters. A year ago, however, left-leaning Rhode Island passed voter ID laws. It was a move that had many people wondering how it was that a blue state signed off on historically Republican legislation. My guest reporter, Peter Schaffenberg, is getting to the bottom of this. Um, David Schaffenberg is getting to the bottom of this. His discoveries are in a recent piece for the Providence Phoenix, who passed voter ID. David, welcome. Thanks for having me. Mm. Um, so again, let's just to put the context is that there are eight voter ID laws passed uh, in the country, most of them with primarily Republican support and even having Republican governors to sign off on them. So here we have Rhode Island, which stands alone. And by the way, as I've talked about this, I've mentioned it to people and it always puzzles them. Yes, it puzzled me too <laughs> for about a year until I started to dig into it. So yes, as you say, there were eight states that passed voter ID laws last year. Some of the governors who signed are some of the, our, our big uh, Republican uh, superstars, uh, Scott Walker out in, uh, in uh, Wisconsin, Nikki Haley in South Carolina, uh, Rick Perry down in Texas. And then here was uh, little old Rhode Island passing this law. And uh, I think a lot of people were caught off guard, uh, both locally and down in Washington, too. So we have uh, Democrats supporting it. Black Democrats supporting it. I just want to be clear. Right. And we, by the way, we've done that story with some of those supporters on this show. But I didn't understand all the behind the scenes stuff until I read your piece. Essentially, from reading your piece, it sounds like, if we can say it, politics as usual, with a lot of backhanding in back rooms and compromising and you know, you you hold my hand on this one and I'll hold yours on another one. Yeah, that certainly <laughs> played a role here. Uh, I think, you know, as outsiders, you tend to look at these from a policy perspective and say, how could a, such a democratic state pass this? And, and it is a bit of a, uh, of a head scratcher here. But yeah, I mean, there's a couple of different elements here, one of which uh, that you've just alluded to. Um, is this sort of conservative Democrat out of Woonsocket by the name of John Breen, who was sort of on the outs with the House leadership uh, and was looking to get back in. And he kind of uh, made peace over dinner at uh, Fleming Steakhouse in, in Providence, Rhode Island, with the Speaker of the House, um, uh, as I chronicle in the story. And that sort of uh, paved the way for his re-entry into the leadership team. And, and well, don't blow past that. The Speaker of the House is an openly gay yes, man. Yes, an so. openly gay, uh, <laughs> uh, with one Cape Verdean parent, so he's a minority okay. as well, uh, kind of left-leaning uh, Providence Democrat. Continue. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, apparently uh, looking to kind of shore up his uh, coalition in what was then a relatively new speakership for him. Um, and so uh, uh, the two of them make their peace, and then John Breen, this conservative Democrat, uh, you know, makes it clear that this is his top priority, um, and that played a crucial role. Um, you know, and I think that gets at one of the uh, larger elements of the story, which is, you know, a lot of people look at Rhode Island and uh, assume it's sort of a smaller version of Massachusetts, um, but it's really got this kind of deep social conservative streak uh, there. Um, and uh, the Democratic Party really dominates the state, but you have uh, some conservative folks who run as Democrats because if you ran as a Republican, you'd have virtually no shot there. So you get a guy like this John Breen who would you know, really be a Republican in, in just about any other state. He's very conservative, uh, pro-life, uh, has uh, pushed measures kind of cracking down on illegal immigration, uh, heavily involved with ALEC, the business-backed uh, uh, conservative mm -hmm. uh, advocacy organization that's gotten a lot of press, a lot of controversy. Um, and, uh, and but he's a Democrat, you know, uh, so that's an element of the party that I think people from outside of Rhode Island don't quite understand. What, what also became clear in your piece is the power of the personal story. If it's coming from a legislator who has a vote yes. uh, and is influenced by that particular experience, because a number of the unlikely suspects uh, in your piece who one would not have thought would have supported it 
came around to it by saying they had experienced what they perceived to be voter fraud. Now, I need to say that this is in complete contrast to every study, every survey, every every uh, what you would call um, uh, credible report that there is virtually no voter fraud in any of these states. So you're putting in laws that are not addressing what the fraud the fraud that exists. Right, right. <laughs> uh, and there's some concern that if there is any fraud, uh, you know, it could potentially be through the mail-in ballot process, and, and that's not even addressed by this bill, but that's another issue. But yes, as you say, there's there's no evidence in Rhode Island or really anywhere around the country that voter impersonation fraud, which is what this uh, uh, law aims to cut down on, is, is a problem. Uh, but you had uh, some legislators, notably some black and Latino legislators, who told some personal stories of what they believed to be personal, you know, voter impersonation impersonation fraud, uh, whether it be showing up at the polls in, in, in one legislator's case and being told that she had already voted when in fact she hadn't. Um, uh, she tells also kind of a, a convoluted tale of, of, uh, of an illegal immigrant who'd used her name falsely and, and was involved himself in, in a voter impersonation fraud ring. Uh, you know, it's hard to verify any of this stuff. But for them, uh, it was clear to me this was a very you know real concern. Um, and their stories carried a lot of weight. I mean, if you have uh, the handful of uh, minority legislators uh, uh, coming out in favor of this bill, it really takes a lot of the pressure off those who are not minority legislators who might be kind of predisposed to it anyhow. And, you know, that whole kind of personal anecdote thing also gets at another element of this, which is that uh, elections are very personal for mm. these uh, legislators. Um, and, uh, you know, we're talking small districts in a small state uh, that can be swung by a dozen votes here or there. And if they believe rightly or wrongly that there's voter fraud going on, uh, they have a very personal stake in, in, in you know, cracking down on such a thing. So two other things to point out from your piece that, you know, uh, certainly deserve highlighting and I'd like to get you to respond to. And one is that uh, there was some mentioning of some potential tension between African-American legislators who watched their demographic demographic uh, in terms of numbers uh, decreasing while watching the Latino increasing. And, and this maybe was a way for to gain some power back by cooperating with some of the, as we say, not usual suspects. Um, and the second thing was that even if you had legislators going forward with this, it still only is uh, goes into law if the if the uh, governor signs it. And so people felt they with some confidence that Lincoln Chafee would not sign uh, such legislation, and yet he did. Right. And in the end, it appears that he hid behind some would say this crassly uh, <laughs> the skirts of the uh, led to the black legislators and say, hey, the minority people said they needed it. So I signed it. Right. So can right. you respond right. to those right. two yeah, things? So a couple different issues there. So the first <laughs> is this uh, uh, suspicion of kind of a black Latino fisher. Um, and there were a lot of Latino activists in particular who said, you know, look, uh, uh, with uh, lots of immigration, uh, the Latino vote is is on the rise, um, and indeed in a state that's really kind of stagnating in terms of population, that's the one real growth area, particularly uh, in South Providence, which is kind of a low-income uh, part of the city, where there, uh, which has traditionally been a bastion of black political power. Um, and just the previous fall, before this bill passed, you had a couple of seats, one on the city council that had been held by an African-American woman for a quarter century, uh, which was taken by a, a Latino uh, city councilman, and uh, a seat uh, in the uh, in the House as well, uh, had been held by a Cape Verdean um, Black Cape Verdean, which was taken by a Latino legislator. Um, so there, that was in the air. Uh, you know, if you ask these uh, uh, black legislators if that was uh, what was uh, behind their move, they will, of course, say no. Um, and in fairness, uh, it is complicated a bit by um, a couple of Latino legislators who came out in favor of this bill. This mm. was not just black legislators. Uh, and one of the central legis uh, legislatures, uh, Anastasia Williams, um, uh, is, uh, considers herself both black and Panamanian right. American, and she came out. So that complicates the story a bit, for sure, but uh, that was definitely uh, a, a piece of the conversation here. Um, and then, as you say, uh, Lincoln Chafee, um, kind of a left-leaning uh, independent. Uh, he had been a, a an old Yankee Republican U.S. senator, kind of a moderate Republican, one of that dying breed. Uh, he was uh, turned out by Sheldon Whitehouse back in 2006, um, came out, lashed out against George W. Bush's presidency, left the Republican Party. There's been speculation recently that he might even become a Democrat at some mm. point. But but for the moment, he's an independent and kind of a left-leaning one. Um, 
and uh, had been voted into office uh, with some support from Latino uh, advocacy groups. So they were a very key constituency, actually, Um, and has those kind of Yankee good government instincts. So folks thought those might come in on their side as well. Uh, the expectation, e- even among the supporters of this bill, was that he would veto it. Uh, but he had this kind of sit-down meeting uh, with supporters, uh, including this couple of black legislators who told their stories in, in very personal terms. He was apparently quite swayed by that. Um, and, or uh, knew he could hide, as right, some have suggested, right, <laughs> behind right, them. Right. And, and he, he's a pretty, uh, in, in, in Link's defense, he's a pretty upfront guy. Um, I I have no reason to doubt that he was swayed by these uh, stories. Whether he should have been is another question. I mean, that's a big question here. Should he be, Should he and, and the legislators uh, have been paying more attention to the data and less to a couple of personal stories? Uh, here's the thing. As you pointed out in your piece, lots of people there not understanding the impact nationally. This is a national story. Mm-hmm. We knew it when we did it here, right. that Rhode Island was going to be a national story. And the fact that Rhode Island, being with all the differences that you've highlighted, mm-hmm. being as it is, it provides a lot of folk in other parts of the country saying, hey, they did it in Rhode Island and Lincoln. Lincoln Chafee signed it, so this must be good legislation. Absolutely, and uh, (laughs) folks in the Democratic Party recognized that even before this thing passed, and one of the things I report on uh, in the story is some last-minute lobbying by at least one member of the Rhode Island congressional delegation, uh, David Cicilline, who uh, faces his own re-election fight there and might have cause uh, for concern in terms of getting all the voters he needs out to the polls. But he lobbied his good personal friend, the Speaker of the House, in, in the waning days, didn't have much luck. And then as I report in the story, uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who's a Florida Democrat, head of the Democratic National Committee, made a last-minute call to the Speaker of the House herself, urging him to spike this bill, even uh, brought up President Obama's name, so the President of the United States does not want this to pass. So there was actually some uh, last-minute tension there, wondering whether uh, President Obama himself might call the Speaker of the House in Rhode Island, as perhaps LBJ might have done uh, <laughs> decades ago, uh, to kill this bill. He didn't. Um, but uh, yeah, from, from, an early, uh, from early on, national Democrats, those with a national view, uh, knew what this would do to their kind of storyline about this being a, a GOP ploy to disenfranchise voters. Um, and it's and, done it. And it's done it, absolutely. You've got uh, uh, Hans Van Spankowski of the Heritage Foundation, sort of the de facto spokesman for these laws, uh, numerous appearances, including one before Congress, you know, pointing to the Rhode Island example to say, look, this is not a uh, Republican ploy. So it's uh, it's had that effect, for sure. Rhode Island will be on the lips of a lot of folk around the country then. <laughs> I guess uh, thank so. you very much for this really interesting story. <laughs> thank you. We've been talking about voter ID and how these laws were passed in Rhode Island. I've been speaking with reporter David Scharfenberg, a writer for the Providence Phoenix. You can find a link to his piece, Who Passed Voter ID, on our website, wgbh.org slash Callie Crossley. You can follow us on Twitter or become a fan of The Callie Crossley Show on Facebook. Today's show was engineered by Alan Mattis, produced by Chelsea Murs, Will Roselip, and Abby Ruzica. The Callie Crossley Show is a production of WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Radio.